And hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio Broadcasting once more, right here on Saga 960 AM and on the Coastal Carolina Network. One half of your host, Dial Ososki, checking in here. It's been a hot minute, but I'm here, I'm ready to go, and I've got some new shades installed in the office, so it's a little cooler on this very warm June day. I'm joined by my colleague, David Clement, who's up there in Toronto. I uh, hope he's staying cool out there, too. It's a hot summer. Yeah, you know, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to upcoming vacation and spending a week on a dock, on a lake, maybe having a few uh, beverages, um, despite what the government of Canada is telling me these days, and, uh, you know, just enjoying the Great White North. Enjoying the Great White North, indeed, and yeah. uh, there's going to be a lot of great celebrations over the summer. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff to do, some nice outdoor activities, a lot of great things that you could be doing and that I'll be doing. I've been, uh, I made a mistake today by walking uh, a lot around town and uh, sweating through my selected baseball cap. Uh, is there any remedy for cleaning hats? Is that something that we should provide as consumer choice radio knowledge? As a, I, you are an a oft hat wearer. Uh, yes. Is there a, a particular procedure for cleaning of the baseball hats? It depends how hardcore you are. If you're really hardcore, you wash it in the washer on cold. And then you can get this insert that goes into the hat so you can dry it. So that it doesn't shrink or lose its shape. Like goes into the head part. I do not have one of those. I usually just wash it on cold and let it air dry. Um... But the people who are serious in the hat game, if they have to wash it, that's what they do. They have this little insert thing. I don't I really you. know if they're used that much anymore. I don't know if that's just like a mid-2000s high school thing or not. But, uh, yeah, um, you can wash them just on cold. Otherwise, you're probably going to bleed the color and have a shrink. I do wonder where I could get one. Faster Prime, Prime now. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Maybe I can uh, do that. <laughs> Stop by the, the store. Um, you know, David, with uh, a lot of these different consumer products in the summertime, we'll try to do a nice little episode about uh, great consumer uh, consumer choice products, things that we like and enjoy, make our lives a lot better for these summer months. Uh, we'll probably try to do a good uh, good segment or two about that because I think the we did talk about the workout regime and and what you can kind of use in terms of electronics and tools and all the rest yeah um the uh the wifey rented an e-bike now we, we talked about the mm. cargo bike that we rented but now she's got an actual just uh singular e-bike that's got the child seat and a basket in the front and Lovely. Um, these bikes are getting better and better they're still pretty expensive pretty pricey you know that's why What's you can the... you can rent them is it... <laughs> Much is it better. a lithium battery in it? Because I've seen a couple of them where like the battery pack is in the middle and then you take off the front of the battery pack and you need like 30 AA batteries. <laughs> no, no, no. This is a lithium one that you just uh, you okay. undock it, bring it upstairs and you got a little uh, adapter, you know, similar to a that's laptop. Good. Yeah. Oh, that's much better. That's much better. Yeah, they've uh, streamlined this stuff. Uh, I know in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there was a big shortage in supply chains and everything else. It seems to be getting a lot better. And uh, there's a lot of different products and a lot of different price points. I've seen some from, uh, you know, the equivalent of about 900 bucks up to, you know, well, obviously you can spend up to 10, 10 K yeah. if you want, yeah. but they've got some affordable options too. And, uh, it does make riding the bike pretty, pretty fun. And, um, 
you know, if you want to challenge yourself, you turn off the battery or, you know, there's always um, something different you can do. Of course, I had the cargo bike, so I was getting a bit crazy with mine uh, carrying kids around. But again, great product. Yeah, I'd love to try that out and see how it's on the hills. I see a lot of mountain bikers. There's a lot of these mountain bikers that they take it. Um, oh. I, I gather that's pretty fun. Um, yeah. You know, you're not absolutely killing yourself, but you know, you can choose to absolutely kill yourself on these mountains too. You can you know, pump down yeah. the battery to, to nothing or put it in smart mode or something like that. Yeah, you just need a little bit of a, a boost to get over uh, to get over a big hill or something. I like that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, plenty of those uh, great things I've seen zipping around. Um, wanted to bring up one topic. Uh, somebody asked me this. I was at the uh, Bitcoin Prague conference uh, yeah. recently. It was in the Czech Republic. And, I uh, wish Bill Maher was there. He would have loved it. You know, Bill Maher <laughs> was not. Um, it seems, though, that, that Trudeau did make an entrance. Invest in Bitcoin. Um, not really, but... Uh, <laughs> I just don't have the Maher clip lined up. That's why... Uh, but I was talking to some people there, and we were talking about, oh, Consumer Choice, Consumer Choice Center, what are you guys are doing, blah, blah, blah. And people were asking me about um, e-bikes and also scooters. And, you know, we've had a good amount of experience with scooters now, David. And a lot of cities are not too hot on the scooters. Some municipalities have banned them outright. Um, some municipalities have made it more difficult. And I was kind of asked about this, and... There are good ways to go about it, bad ways to go about it. Uh, if you go to Amsterdam, people have liked to throw these things into the canals. <laughs> um, you know, they're not very well guarded. And other places, I believe now in San Francisco, even though they are banned, you know, on the periphery where they are legal, there's a self-locking mechanism. And uh, one thing that I do love about it is there is a self-governing type of thing where uh, once you park it, you have to take a picture and uh, send it in the platform and uh you know if there's a complaint later they can go back and see that you're the one who parked it terribly and uh i i don't i can't imagine you'd pay a fine but there'd be some kind of ding on your account uh but i'm wondering it's just good accountability it is good accountability yeah yeah the issue is people just leaving them right in the middle of a sidewalk and then it's in the way or you I mean, an example would be somebody in a wheelchair having to try and navigate around a sea of scooters that are in the way of their only path to wherever they're going. Um, but again, easily solvable without banning it um, by just creating some mechanism for accountability. And then bam, okay, they're in better spots. And then people, I mean, it is weird to think of the idea of Amsterdam, of all cities, being irritated with scooters, given... That that city is basically like a graveyard for bikes. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why bikes uh, run supreme. You know, cars run supreme in other areas, but in Amsterdam and there in the cities in the lowlands, uh, don't you dare put a... Uh, often the, the problem is people put them in front of doors. Uh, people leave them in the bike lane. Um, so there is a lot of irresponsibility on the part of many people who use them. And, you know, what is the answer to that? We ban it outright or we figure out better self-governing mechanisms that the companies can employ and ideally not have to do it through rules. Um, in At least in Vienna, from what I've seen, you have to leave it at a bike rack. So you do need to leave it in a place that's you know out of the road, out of the bike lane, and is generally racked away. Um, there are fewer and fewer. What many cities are doing is they're only giving licenses to one or two companies. So whereas before you had four or five, like in 
uh, Brussels or you know a place like New York. Uh, now you only have two or three. Yeah, I don't yeah, love... Just another lesson in how we uh, try to understand the mobility economy. And, um, yeah, yeah. I it's... don't love picking only a certain amount of companies. I mean, unless it's on some regulatory basis where they're like, yeah, you have to have an accountability mechanism built in and a company's like, no. Well, then I could understand them maybe not getting approval. But if they can comply with the law, why on earth would you stop? I mean... It just makes it easier or cheaper or more efficient because people can choose between different uh, different options. Um, I mean, I, I the one example that I particularly liked was the ones that are operated by Uber because it's it can be built into the Uber the existing app. I'm not downloading anything new. I'm not verifying anything new. I'm not submitting new payment details or verifying my identity it's just like a a different box i can check opening up the uber app and then it just beep okay yeah this is my scooter now the billing is done quickly and efficiently um so my experience with that has been pretty positive it just didn't require me to download anything else which um for anyone who's who's seen my phone uh, I'm, i'm a max capacity on apps so yeah, I, I think you've, you've. I think you unfortunately clicked the uh, boomer button on your phone, so you just downloaded everything. <laughs> All these like crazy, insane apps. Uh, I, so I'm reminded of this again. We're talking about just generally ride sharing, and this is something that we've talked about a lot at Consumer Choice Radio from day one. Um, there's an interesting ruling that came down in the uh, European Union, uh, the Court of Justice, essentially uh, giving. Uh, an ultimatum stating that they need to put down like an actual regulation um, that you European authorities do in the cities as well. They need to come up with like some kind of regulation to put limits on ride hailing services. And um, the the folks that are in uh, Spain uh, getting pretty intense. They're basically saying, look, if there's not an agreement here in the next tw- 10 days, we will, quote, inundate the streets and airports and they will essentially have the biggest strike ever. This is uh, par for the course for Spain. Spain has always yeah. been very against ride-hailing apps. France has always been against ride-hailing apps. Um, the taxi monopolies have reigned supreme. Um, they've reigned supreme in New York. They've reigned supreme in many other cities where um, most of the ride-sharing apps now are pretty much a, just a shell of themselves. You have most of the licenses that are given out to companies, and it's just replicated the taxi model, but you use your phone. <laughs> Uh, so we've kind of lost the innovation. You do have it in some Canadian and American cities that, you know, you can actually be a, a dad. You know, you just had your uh, wife just had a child. and You're just trying to pay some medical bills or you know stack up some extra cash. So you work the weekends picking people up in your minivan. Um, that's not legal in most of the, uh, at least the European world, many other places, because you need to have a specific license and you have to be hired by a company and you need a company car with, you know, all kinds of insurances. It seems as if that these people, the legacy incumbents, they won the battle, David. And well, yeah, nobody's in, learned in, any lessons about what consumers want. In a lot of cities, I think that's the case. And um, the only city that I, I... I don't know if this is still true, but it was true 
when I was there, I think it was 2018 in Ireland, in Dublin. And they didn't have Uber at the time, but they had essentially like deregulated the taxi medallion system. And I think people were able to use their own vehicles after a certain like process. And so there were a ton of taxi drivers and there was that flexibility on the work side where people could do it kind of as like a part-time uh, endeavor. Um, Did you say it was in Ireland? Uh, yeah, in Dublin. At least that's how it was described oh, okay. to me. I don't know yeah. if it's the same taxi driver guy who pulled a gun on the dude in the car, that video that came out oh. recently, where the guy's <laughs> threatening him because he needed to pay back money to the gang or whatever. I think that's in Belfast, actually. So yeah, I, a bit I more north, I north than I You want to pay a buck that money and all. <laughs> I knew I recognized that guy. <laughs> yeah, I knew I'd seen uh. him. It's the guy who said the taxi protest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and look, there's only there's going to be many different options. Our our new colleague uh, Stephen Kent um, is talking about the sharing economy when it comes to um, well your backyard pool, uh, which I find is a very interesting idea. People can rent out their pool and you know allow people to come in and chill for for a nice little uh, dip in the evening or during the afternoon. And uh, many people are against this. Not in my backyard. Yeah. Oh so it seems goodness. like a, a lot of this stuff is, uh, it, it applies to every single sector. It doesn't matter if you're trying to get on a scooter, trying to get in a car, or trying to, you know, jump in the pool. There's always somebody that's going to stop you, try to get in the way, be a middleman. Um, middle, yeah. fun middleman. Yeah, the fun police. I mean, I, I was in a, a local Facebook group that was all of like people talking about what was going on. Because and, and, some of this started in the greater Toronto area during COVID. Because, I mean, if you were. During the lockdowns, if you're in a small condo, you get a little stir-crazy. And you had these pool rental options, which are pretty cool because not everybody can have... Not not everybody can own a home or have pro- access to a property with a pool, um, afford to put a pool in. And for a lot... I mean, for a lot of pool owners, unless you're, like, using it every day, they sit idle for a lot of time. And so... If you can make a little extra cash letting people respectfully uh, and safely use your pool, I mean, that should be up to you. It's your property. I mean, I don't really know what the difference is. Like, if I have my family and my brothers-in-law and my my nieces and nephews over and we're all in the pool. Well, hold on, David. Before you jump into your pool party, uh, we got to go to our break. Well, you're back here on Consumer Choice Radio. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. And we're back here on Consumer Choice Radio. We're talking about the sharing economy, all those great uh, new services that popped up in the last decade and how many of them are being restricted. And uh, we talked about one particular startup that's doing the pools. Um, So allowing you to, when you have your backyard pool and you ain't using it, you can actually uh, rent it out to whomever would like to on this platform. Uh, Seems like a win-win. Many neighbors not so enthused, thinking about things like parking, uh, the noise, um, very similar to just normal uh, sort of house sharing, flat sharing, uh, Airbnb type stories that we've heard before. Um, but yeah, David, I don't know what uh, what do you think will be the the model forward in you know let's say your your backyard if you had a pool. I mean, I I don't understand these objections because they're they're equally as valid if I have my family over. 
like we I have a, we have a pretty big family between uh, my wife and I's brother brothers and sisters um, and their kids. Like if we had our family over, it'd be a pretty big group of people. A lot of kids running around. Probably be certainly wouldn't be quiet. Um, all the objections of where are they going to park and what if it's noisy um, and I don't know who these people are. They all apply to if you just happen to be entertaining. And so I don't really buy it. I mean, you can build in the, again, accountability protocol. Um, There are already bylaws for noise ordinances uh, and things like that. Like, you're not going to have a raging pool sharing party at 11.30 p.m. and keep the neighborhood up. Not because... You like and, and the the way to do that isn't oh well we have to ban the app I mean because I could have a party at my if I had a pool I could have a party at my house any night and break that noise bylaw um, just create an accountability mechanism in accordance with whatever the the bylaws are and leave people alone mind your own business mind your own business indeed yeah we've got a we've got many other innovations that we'll talk about in the weeks to come and particularly for enjoying the summer. Because there's a lot of times, a lot of fun police out there trying to get in the in the way of you having a good time. Uh, a lot of nannies out there, uh, David. We've um, we've covered a lot of the political happenings both sides of the border. Uh, we've got some some U.S. presidential stuff. We've got um, uh, the JCPA. This is the Journalism um, Cartel Protection Act um, that is being uh, actually discussed at this moment at the U.S. Senate in Washington D.C. We've got a uh, very similar version, Bill C-18 in Canada, uh, which we're, we're kind of uh, living through the repercussions of that. Uh, where do you want to go? We've got a couple different directions here. Segment two of the show. Uh, take it away, Mr. News Producer. Well, yeah, I mean, what is the best way to save the news industry? Right, that's the goal. Now, they're trying to do it in nefarious ways by making Facebook pay for it. Um, and it just seems like we're on the cusp of some sort of larger transition, uh, in regards to news coverage and things of that nature. And my feeling is that any type of subsidy or kind of corporate job owning to get Facebook to play ball and pay publishers is just going to solidify the existing system, make a bit of a dependency trap, um, and hold back the industry from whatever that change is going to be moving forward. Yeah, it's a lot of the incumbents, and uh, the incumbents will win out. So if you happen to start a media company, if you happen to you know invest the money and the time and the effort, uh, good for you. You're cemented. You're placed in the rules. You're in the cartel. If you're uh, an upstart, if you're an online person, if you're uh, perhaps a journalist who's been let go from any of the legacy companies and want to branch out on your own in an independent way, um, bunch else. Good luck. And I find this all, all this conversation, and you see this with a lot of regulations, David, we write about this in many different contexts, countries, and languages. Uh, you know, a lot of the legislation is focused on yesterday's models and structures. And it's a lot of the old guard trying to just protect themselves. Because while we're talking about this and link taxes and all of the rest, People are starting entirely new journalistic endeavors on things like Substack. Or, if you're Tucker Carlson, fully on Twitter. 
where people are able to make a living, make an income. They're able to get subscriptions. People are able to pay for their content directly. Uh, small fees sometimes for Substack or sometimes directly, no fees at all. And there's all kinds of these things, both on the left and right uh, political spectrum, whether it be locals or uh, I don't really know what the left-wing version is, I guess a Patreon type thing. There's all these different models that are evolving right in front of us that do not involve uh, governments making a cartel exception, which is what a lot of this stuff does, and then uh, basically allowing media conglomerates, Rupert Murdoch, uh, and any of the big firms uh, to get their payday from a company like Meta or Google and the like. Uh, we're just regulating for yesterday. And meanwhile, today is sitting right in front of us. And I mean, we're able to produce this uh, program as a radio show, reproduce it as a podcast, put it out into the world. And, you know, we're able to do that with relatively few resources. And that's what technology provides. Uh, I don't think we're going to have to, you know, issue any kind of, uh, you know, reimbursement to all the old legacy guys, because that's just not how it works. It's not how innovation works, and it's not how the future works. No, it certainly isn't. And, I mean, the other flip side of this, the other kind of pressure, is to add more, um, more government money into the mix. And that, for a lot of people, raises some red flags of independence, Again, a dependency trap. Very rarely, <laughs> very rarely, do industries that rely heavily on government subsidy um, survive without that subsidy after a, a serious period of time because they become so dependent on it. And then it raises some questions. I mean, you've worked in, um, in your previous life when you were chasing down stories. Um, that it depends. I mean, I don't think government funding turns the turns journalists into uh, government mouthpieces. Um, but obviously, there, there there could be a scenario where if it gets to a certain extent of dependence, it becomes a real problem. Yeah, and there's a lot of incentives at play, and it doesn't even have to be uh, just about the money. I think we we've seen this trend in the um, I would say both American and Canadian journalism, where many journalists are starved for access. So in exchange for access to Defense Department, PMO's office, whatever, they will run stories, you know, a source familiar with the matter. None of that stuff used to cut it in journalism. We never, you had to get a quote, there's all my old editors in my ear. Give me a quote with a name, an affiliation. No hearsay, rumors, you know, a source give me something legit. And what, what they've done now is essentially all the people in power are whispering to journalists. Journalists are whispering to those in power. It becomes very insidious. And I think um, one of the best at talking about this, or at least breaking it down, is Matt Taibbi, the American journalist. And he talks a lot about journalism has gone from a you know, blue-collar job, whereas a lot of union newspapers you know, in some of these cities and towns, to now it's very much a white-collar you know, you went to Harvard or Yale or, you know, U of T or you, you went to some elite university. You come from money. Uh, most of the time you don't need the actual salary. You're, uh, you know, you're someone like, what's his name? Anderson Cooper Vanderbilt <laughs> swimming in billions on the weekend and telling the news during the day. And a lot of that, that's been 
and it's been we've gone from the the tradition of journalism which is you're supposed to question those in power it's supposed to be a kind of you know fourth branch fourth estate third estate whatever you want to call it in order to to hold power to account but many different things have uh, really left us scratching our heads i think well yeah that investigative side is supposed to be entrenched in the concept um there are not that many journalists who break stories anymore i mean not a great movie for anyone who is interested in this uh type of thing uh actually two great movies one is spotlight which is the investigative team in boston at the boston globe uncovering um the sex abuse scandals with with catholic priests that um, movie just seemed like such by the way that movie just seems like such a fantasy because of the amount of resources they put into that like number of journos and they would publish one article every three months. It's like, bro, <laughs> I had to write two. Not anymore. I know, yeah, I had to write two articles yeah, yeah. a day, and yeah, yeah, you do all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't work like that anymore. Um, yeah, definitely doesn't work like that anymore. But that and the Post, um, which is historically going further back, that's the Washington Post's publication of the the Pentagon Papers and what Daniel Ellsberg had un, un, uh, unveiled in regards to uh, the war in Vietnam and what Americans were being told versus the reality. I know that those movies are maybe overdone in terms of nostalgia, but I think the principles hold true there. Um, I love this. In regards uh, to like, I forget who said this quote, but isn't it odd? We've talked about bad guys in movies. There's never a bad guy journo, never a bad guy journalist in a movie. No, the only ever bad guy journo I've ever seen in a movie is in the movie Contagion, the conspiracy theorist guy. Oh, what? But yeah. they, 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 but they don't cast him as like a journo. They cast him as like their version of Alex Jones. Dude, the Alex <laughs> like Jones someone who calls himself the Alex Jones trope on television in television series. There are so many of these. Oh, <laughs> I've yeah. seen an Alex Jones because, you know, a guy at the mic. And then, like, he gets off mic and he's, like, a totally normal guy. <laughs> I've seen this yeah. in, like, every program now. SWAT, you know, Law then, and Order. It goes, so it, I have a funny anecdote. It goes a lot further back than that. Because I remember playing the old, old Grand Theft Auto for, like, the first PlayStation that was just bird's eye view. And you could change the radio station, and like one of the radio stations was some guy who sounded exactly like Alex Jones, <laughs> spouting off all sorts of conspiracies. So they've been I, there've been a lot of uh, a lot of different entities who've been creating fictional Alex Joneses. Oh yeah, and this is a it's a grand old tradition of radio. You had Father Coughlin uh, throughout the 1930s and 40s in the U.S., who was the sort of main antagonist of uh, FDR. And was sort of sort of created that firebrand radio stuff, you know. Uh, you know when Joe Biden said he would watch the uh, radio announcements by FDR. <laughs> that's an that's an old uh, Bidenism from many years ago. Uh, but yeah, you, you've had that trope, and and um, we have to remember Alex Jones was in the movie A Scanner Darkly with Keanu Reeves, and he plays the prophet. Ooh, I can't say I know that. Oh one. my goodness, it's one of the Philip K. Dick um, novels that was turned into a movie, and it was. Very interesting in that everyone is like a, a cartoon. You know, it's like real life filmed, but they put a cartoon filter on it, you know, before Mid Journey or any of these AI things. 
and uh, Alex Jones plays the prophet and he talks about, you know, he's got a megaphone, he's yelling about <laughs> stuff. Uh, he's got a great little IMDB credit. Uh, but you're definitely true. And look, the, talking about independent media, you know, that's another thing. You see, you had an entire independent media uh, sort of environment that's grown up that's totally independent. One of them I'm thinking of is the Daily Wire or, you know, even Western Standard in Canada or Rebel News. I mean, these are all like independent entities. You might dislike a lot of their journalism reporting, if it could be called that. Yeah, but it's, yeah. You might. I would. That might be a bit of a generous term for some of these outlets. Well, let's let turn flip um, on the television today. And tell me, you know, half of this isn't just op-ed, you know, opinion uh, things in between the news segments, and it's happening all the time, right? Yeah, it definitely. Well, I've, I've, we've talked about this a lot. Uh, seeing, I mean, what appears in the opinion page, and then seeing how it like blend has blended over time, where like a report on an issue, you just feel the the slant coming through, um, in a way that isn't like asking tough questions, um, but in a way that that's like, I mean, I think of like. Um, What's her name? Oh yeah, uh, Taylor Lorenz. Oh boy, who became wildly popular, but like, it just—I would read some of her stuff, and it just felt so cheap, um, especially for someone who is like otherwise probably a really fantastic writer. Uh, but it just felt so cheap because it—it it was like an extension of like a gossip rag, put in the Washington yeah. Post. Yeah, and there's there's been a lot of those, but hey. If you can uh, get yourself a, a market and audience, why not? We'll hear more about this and other topics here on Consumer Choice Radio. Stay tuned. We're drowning out the fun police. And we're back here on Consumer Choice Radio, uh, talking a little bit about uh, journalism competition. Uh, there's a lot of different moves, uh, both uh, north of the border, south of the border, U.S. and Canada, to figure out how we can... Uh, try to get as much cash out of the tech companies as possible and reimburse those journos. Oh, sorry, I'm just getting getting to the point here. Um, but yeah, David, there's a, you mentioned a couple of these movies where journalism, uh, as we mentioned, uh, I talked about or asked the question is if there's been a, if there's ever been a bad guy in a bad journo in a movie? Uh, I can't, not that I can think of. Now, I don't remember the name of the journalist who was in House of Cards. Well, um, I don't know if you consider oh, her a yeah. foil. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. And the, uh, yeah, I can't. I, where where the person is like, the journalist is the villain. I can't. Yeah, the only, of course, the only one I'm thinking of is Atlas Shrugged, uh, where you have I think his name is Eli Toothy or something. He's the the progressive, uh, essentially New York Times op-ed editor who's the bad guy. He's all. And there's another one in Fountainhead. There's much the same. It's like the architect critic from you know the big progressive paper uh so obviously the bad guys in the ayn rand novels uh yeah yeah that's a big one um i, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the politics stuff because um some of the the field is coming in and uh, there have been a number of issues that i think are related to the consumer choice realm that are being discussed by some of the candidates uh probably don't want to go down the trump rabbit hole but uh no. <laughs> please no uh there's one fella, though, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy. Uh, so he's a, uh, I believe he's kind of a biotech executive. Had some kind of tech firm. Yeah. 
comes from the corporate world of some Silicon sort. Valley tech world. Um, you know, he was at the Bitcoin conference in Miami. Uh, talked about oh. it. had some Bitcoin plan right beside uh, RFK Jr. Uh, and oh, they, I, I don't, <laughs> man, RFK Jr. It's people. It's like people forget that he's spent his most of his entire adult life just being a megaphone for fraud, just like outright lies and nonsense. And it's like, how sad is it that because of the state of the political situation in the U.S. right now, he's considered like, I mean, there's no chance that he primaries Biden, but there are no, no, no. He otherwise is intelligent he is people. primarying Biden, though. No, I think that he would be successful in primarying, primarying Biden. Um, and But there are otherwise serious people, otherwise intelligent people who are like, yeah, RFK. And it's like, certainly we could do better than than Trump or RFK or Biden. Like that could that cannot be the best the U.S. has to offer. So the last poll was uh, from June fourteenth, Quinnipiac, uh, Biden seventy, uh, Kennedy seventeen. Um, the highest one he had one that was over I think it was over twenty one percent in Emerson poll. Uh, so yeah, really I mean, he has good name recognition. That helps. Is that, is that um, JFK who is running? I yeah. like him. Let's put <laughs> him in. <laughs> yeah. Is this... I knew his death was a hoax. <laughs> He's back. I heard about all those aliens uh, in the news. Well, they, they have... Um, there's a, you have a, a situation there where you have someone who's deeply unpopular in Biden... And I think you can do an entire program as to all the anti-consumer choice stuff that Biden has done, uh, particularly around energy, not even getting into the culture war stuff. Um, and I don't, sincerely, I don't know if many of the Republicans are better. Uh, it's just not the issues of the time because everything is becoming a bit a trap of it either has to be something about Trump or something culture war uh, you know, I talk, that's why I mentioned uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. What was interesting about him is he actually did talk about the trade war. And uh, what he was saying is that, you know, basically we need to figure out a way that we can try to end the war in Ukraine while defeating Russia, while defeating China. And you know what? No one's talking about all these trade deals we were supposed to have in uh, you know, Singapore, Japan, Korea, and all this stuff, like, let's revamp all of those, start trading again like crazy to these places, make them less dependent on China, and let's be sure to prop up Taiwan. He's a big Taiwan bull, because uh, I think he understands the semiconductor. Yeah, business. he understands the importance beyond the very legitimate um, liberal democracy part of why it's important to defend Taiwan. He gets the geopolitical economic consequences of, uh, of, a, of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Um, hilarious story. Hilarious story. Did you hear about Lionel Messi's issue traveling to China? It's a strange world out there. Tell me all about it. <laughs> so he gets to... Um, so he, uh, he's traveling on a Spanish passport. So there's one of the top um, uh, footballers or uh, soccer players yes. in the world. Yeah, the, the goat, um, the greatest of all time. 
so he's traveling to um, to China. Uh, he has a Spanish passport. If you have a Spanish passport, you have visa-free entry into Taiwan. And so he gets to the border on the mainland or the, the transit area. And they're like, sir, do you have a visa? And he's like, well, no, I have visa-free entrance into Taiwan. And the, the guard is like, no, you need a visa for, for China. And he goes, but I thought Taiwan was part of China. It's like the inverse troll. He didn't do it on purpose. Like, I think he actually... He just doesn't know. Like, <laughs> but he's like, but you guys have been telling me this for years. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm I'm allowed to go to that part of the country. I can't come to this part. Go <laughs> so it's just like an epic, epic, um, like, <laughs> oh, yeah, there's one China, but not, not at the border. It's a, a nice troll in action. <laughs> yeah, and I saw, I guess yeah. he's um, changed teams to go to Miami. Is that right? Yeah, he has. Okay, yeah. So he has. That's a big deal because I mean, a lot of a lot of European players or, or like the top players in European football will kind of move at the end of their career. Um, but he's not really at the end of his career. Like he's just coming off of a World Cup, um, and and uh, still considered the best player in the world for the most part. Um, so it is a huge move. Uh, for MLS and for Miami, um, and just it cha- it could it, it just continues to change the dynamics of of how the game is played internationally and where the best players play. Um, it would be very interesting to see what I would love to see one day is for the MLS to become competitive enough. Where you would have the top league and the top team or teams in MLS qualify for Champions League, you can have a Champions League final that's like Inter Miami versus Manchester United, um, and like a true kind of world championship. That would be really cool. Um, will we get there in North America? I don't know. Is there enough domestic interest? Certainly in a city like Miami, where there are enough people. Um, Either from originally originally from a different country or with family originally from a different country where soccer is the number one sport, that helps. Um, I think the MLS has room to be a global player. Um, are we going to see the MLS take off across the country where you have like a team in Milwaukee and they're well supported? Probably not. Not yet. Um, but it would be really cool to see the MLS get to that level um, and to actually compete for the best talent in the world. Competition in sports leagues, David, that would be uh, very interesting. I don't know if there's any uh, good examples in the news about competition between sports leagues. Of course, I'm talking about um, XFL because uh, The Rock just posted on Instagram that he was uh, hanging out at the board meeting of XFL. Uh, I didn't hear one single thing about XFL this entire year, uh, just that The Rock was uh, drinking tequila there or something. Yeah, I, to be honest, I have the, I, I think the XFL is just a, a pipe dream. It's, ne- it's not happening. Somebody's uh, getting rich at that table. So. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. But uh, it's not, uh, <laughs> it's just never going to happen. Um, 
it's going to take a lot more to disrupt the NFL. You need like significant amount of players leaving or being offered great contracts. Um, you know, perhaps uh, where you have a lot of funding from a foreign nation or sovereign fund, perhaps. Uh, I don't know if there are any recent examples that, that spring to mind. <laughs> Funny you should ask that. Yeah, I guess we're talking about golfing. Uh, yeah. I've been told by yeah. a number of people they're picking up golfing now. They've followed the golfing news, and we're talking about Live Tour and PGA. And yeah. uh, many people were PGA purists and were upset that some players left to go to Live to get uh fat paychecks and uh now they've they've merged they're back yeah well they've merged in the sense that they both have the same primary investor which is the sovereign wealth fund of uh of saudi arabia and so everybody who ridiculed the live players for leaving like the commissioner of the pga had invoked the victims of 9-11 saying, I have friends who have family who perished on 9-11, and I don't know how these players go to sleep at night and not think about the implications of taking this money. Then fast forward, I don't know, a year or however long it was, and uh, now the PGA's primary investor is the same fund. They spent months uh, months and a lot of money um, lobbying against, and so they all look like hypocrites now. Um, I feel bad for some of the players who stayed, who didn't take the money, right? The Live Tour offers you $200 million and the tour convinces you to stay on, basically to say you still have the moral high ground. And then the tour stabs you in the back and takes that money. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, it's a, there, there are a lot of discussions about, is it sport washing, um, those are all very valid questions, but now they're all moot because the PGA Tour takes the safe takes from the same pot of money, so they don't really have a, a leg to stand on or criticize in that way. Meet the new boss, same with the old boss. Uh, yeah, you never know. Uh, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Yeah, it, it is I mean, an interesting scenario, and I don't know sponsorships. You know how that played out, and and um, you don't see as many sponsorship controversies around uh, golf. Uh, no. I, I guess most of the sponsorships are with the individual players, maybe, or golfers. Yeah, yeah. I'm most, just thinking I mean, of Tiger Woods, bro. I know nothing yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. The tournaments are sponsored. Like, it's the RBC Canadian Open and things like that. Um, I mean, if I'm, a, if I'm a journalist in the press gallery of whenever the next press conference is, the first question I would ask is to... The golfers, not necessarily, but to the commissioner, would be, what are your thoughts on the journalist who was chopped up and carried out in a suitcase by the Saudis? Like, I want to know his answer. Like, is he now, is he now tied to not criticize? I really hope not. Um, that would be a huge disservice. Um, that would be a big net negative um, if there is some obligation within that that says, like, you you have to be hush-hush about what your opinions are about Saudi Arabia. That would be really disappointing. Well, uh, it's just like asking baseball players uh, to be, you know, fairly well-versed in uh, gender theory and uh, <laughs> yeah. make sure they understand what the rules are around um, 
pronouns and uh, pride yes. month and all the rest uh these are baseball guys you know you don't go to them for understanding culture no uh, you go to them to watch the baseball game <laughs> very true very true so well what do i know what do i know i'm just a just a fan just a participant in this uh this strange world out there that we're living in uh we've covered a lot of great topics today david thanks for doing another uh, consumer choice radio as always, our program is available as a podcast as well. If you just uh, caught half of this, you just got in the car, you enjoyed uh, our little convo, our back and forth, go to consumerchoiceradio.com. You'll be able to find that. Uh, and David, let's uh, chat again next week. Sounds good. Until then. <laughs>